All right. Uh, thank you very much, Pastor. And uh, if you want to take your Bibles and you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. Or if you want to open your phone or if you have Matthew chapter 6 memorized or chapter 5 memorized, that'll be fine too. I have a, uh, a special gift or I guess a, an ability that many of you do not know about. There, well, I don't have many at all, so you, you may be ignorant about them all. But nonetheless, there's one of them that I'm really, really, really good at, and it's called being nearsighted. So when I take off my glasses, you got, you, you're, just, you're just fuzz. That's all I see. It has to be about right here before I can see things. I remember when I was, I think I was about 12 years old. I grew up at that time out in Irvington. Do I have any people from Irvington here? Any Irvington? You really? No. Let's get together after a service. We need to talk. <laughs> I knew there was something about you that was different, but uh, I grew up out in Irvington. Yeah. Wait, that is Irvington. <laughs> but uh, there was a dirt pit. Now, you know the story's getting good when I say there was a dirt pit. And there was a dirt pit out behind my house, and me and my friends would go ride our bikes back there. Matter of fact, it's that same dirt pit that the off-road park is at now, off County Farm Road number 9 or whatever it is. And we were down there one day, and, uh, of course, we were boys, so we were throwing dirt clods at each other because that's what you do. And uh, I went down into this uh, kind of, you know, there had been a, I, I, I hesitate to say it was a pond. It was basically a gigantic mud hole. It just filled up with water, and I went down there to wash the mud off of me. And while I was down there washing it off of me, one of my friends had just lobbed this huge dirt clod just right up in the air, and somebody, they yelled at me because they could see the trajectory. It was like a heat-seeking stinger missile, man. It was like headed right. I mean, it's hard to miss my head, but it was coming right at my head. And one of the uh, somebody yelled, buddy, don't turn around. Well, when I heard my name, I turned around just in time to see this dirt clod hit me smooth in the eye. Just, I mean, I just turned around and just like opened my eye like this, you know, just like a contact. Boom, right direct hit to the cornea, you know, just smacked me right in that. Knocked me back under the water and I started choking. And I come up out of the water and I'm like, oh man, that hurt. And when I opened my eye, all I saw was white, you know. I could see like shadows, but I, you know, out of that eye. Uh, but I couldn't, you know, make anything out. My eye was full of blood. My friends run down there, and they all had that look on their face like, oh, no, <laughs> we're all dead. You know, they had that. we've killed his eye. It's all over with. I, you know, the only cool thing about it is, is I got to wear a patch over my eye for like three months, so I was like kind of this like redneck pirate. And uh, so uh, when the doctor, the, the ironic thing is, is when the, uh, you know, I couldn't see anything, and it, it, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, and healed up. Okay, I guess. Actually, you know, when we sat down and, you know, put, you go to the doctor, the eye doctor, and you put your head in that, like, traction gear, you know what I mean? And they do that puff of air, which I personally think does nothing. They just like to do it to mess with you. And so I had my head in this traction gear, and, you know, he was doing the some kind of laser thing in my eye trying to determine if there was any damage. And uh, he got done, and he sat back, and he laughed. He said, according to my tests, you can actually see better out of your damaged eye then you can see out of your other eye. I was like, well, that's bad. Got it all healed up, and I remember the first time I got glasses, you know. I was, I don't know, I think I was in like sixth grade, something like that. And they were these big old gigantic things because, yo, it was early 90s. And uh, 
I put those. I can remember putting those glasses on for the first time and thinking to myself, "Wow, everything has a sharp, crisp edge." You know, <laughs> I didn't realize that. I didn't realize there was like you know a line wasn't fuzzy. You know, everything was fuzzy to me. And I remember when uh, an eye doctor on Spring Hill Avenue, I put those things on and looked around. I was like, oh, my gosh, my life has changed. And I, I felt like that for a second. I was like, this is amazing. You know, I can see everything. And uh, that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. It's about being able to see clearly. Um, the general zeitgeist of the world we live in right now is confusion. That's what it is. Confusion keeps you rocked back onto your heels uh, it keeps you kind of wavering, so to speak. Confusion is like taking a, a jab to the chin and you're having to readjust constantly. Uh, the world we live in is a world of confusion. It always has been. Um, I think it kind of spikes at times like a bad fever, you know. I think right now it's like spiking, and that's no pun intended with the pandemic thing that we're dealing with either. Uh, but, you know, it you know, just spikes at times. Right now it's, it's spiked up. Uh, there's a lot of confusion, and I'm not about to give you a political speech, believe me, all right? I save those for ambiguous Facebook posts. But anyways, uh, <laughs> what we, with that confusion, it, does, it can trickle down into uh, the church. And I'm not saying necessarily our church in general, uh, but the church at large, that church universal, if you want to use that word. I know that's kind of a, a naughty word to some people, but nonetheless, it's still true. There's more than just this church out there. And so anyways, it's, it can trickle down. And one of the big areas I feel like in the New Testament church where we're constantly, uh, we may tend to be reevaluating on the basis of confusion rather than being solidly grounded is the idea of righteousness. Um, I call this kind of, of teaching the first part of the epistle teaching. Because if you go to any of the epistles that Paul wrote, you'll find that the first half of his epistle is all very doctrinal. And by the way, doctrine is not the enemy of relationship. It's actually a catalyst into it. Uh, because if we understand what is actually true, if we understand the basis of the nature of God more and more clearly, it's going to throw us into the back part of that epistle, which are the things that we tend to think we struggle with all the doing aspect of Christianity versus the being aspect of it, which are not in conflict with one another. The last part of that epistle is a direct result of understanding the first part of the epistle. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, and we know it as the Beatitude Scripture, and he's going to say some, he says some, uh, I guess it's an understatement of the whole message to say that Jesus said some interesting things. Uh, but nonetheless, in Matthew chapter 5, he says something very interesting as far as the Beatitudes are concerned. And I remember going to Sunday school as a kid and uh, learning on a flannel graph, which we learned about Wednesday night. Show up on Wednesday night, you'll learn what a flannel graph is. You know what one is. You know what a flannel graph is. Right? It, we need to bring the flannel graph back. Hashtag bring back the flannel graph. Start it on social media. Let's blow this up. And so and uh, I remember learning about the Beatitudes as a kid. And you memorize them just for the sake of memorizing them to be honest, plus you get the candy at the end, right? And in these Beatitudes, even as adults, we read them and we're like, you know, we kind of scratch our heads sideways and we're like, what, what is the point of this? What is Jesus promoting? What is he pushing? What is he wanting us to understand? Is the Beatitudes, are they there for us to learn how to behave? Or are they there to set us up for something bigger than how we can behave? I personally think it's the latter. I think Jesus is setting us up for something bigger than what we can just do. 
Now, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6, we're going to look at one verse about righteousness that Jesus brings up. Then we're going to look at three other verses. We only have two points. I should be out of here an hour and 47 set minutes. So just hang on. I'm kidding. It won't be that long. It'll be like an hour and 30 minutes. But in verse 6 of chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, For they shall be filled. What an interesting statement. He goes on later in this chapter, if we'll, we'll just hit the fast forward button, not that the rest of this stuff is not important, but I believe he's linking things together here in verse number 20. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, hold up, man. I, I feel like I, I can't get this right. <laughs> You tell me that I'm blessed for hungering after righteousness, but then you turn around and you tell me that unless what you actually do exceeds these other people that are trying their guts out, you don't even have a chance. Well, thus we see what Jesus is doing here. He is setting us up for us to one day understand that there's something about righteousness that is bigger than what you can do. Now... Uh, with all that being said, the word, and I'm, I'm trying to do my best not to make this technical. You know that sometimes I can get way over technical, and I apologize for that in advance. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, the word righteousness is a righteous, or righteousness is found 137 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. You know, if Jesus references something once or twice, or God uh, references it two or three times, that's important. But when he brings it up 137 times, you understand what it's like to be a parent. You've told them to turn the light out 137 times last week, all right? I have been told 137 times in the last two weeks not to use the hand towels in the kitchen for anything other than drying my hands. It's not working, all right? It's not. It's not. We're going to need way more paper towels is all I got to say. Thank God that rush is over so I can actually... Anyways, 137 times. Unfortunately, most of us as believers, and I hate to use broad brush terms like that. That may or may not apply to you. Just go with the statement because I got it from somebody else, okay? Most Christians and non-Christians alike have a similar issue. They see the Bible's call to behave righteously as a way and a means to actually obtain righteousness. That's where the confusion comes in. So I'm going to have to move that, or we're going to have a clip on YouTube of me falling before it's all over with. So I'm going to put that back there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I love you too. And so the difference uh, is this. The lost man in his self-righteousness behaves in order to get himself to heaven. He's like, I'm going to keep these laws. I'm going to keep these morals or these rules that I have upon myself or these things that I was taught by my parents. And if I'm just this kind of a person then one day God is going to overlook all the things that I did that weren't quite up to snuff. You know what I mean? The Christian, on the other hand, in our attempts to act in righteousness, which is actually self-righteousness, we attempt not to get ourselves to heaven. We rest in that gifted righteousness for, you know, some... Which way did you say heaven? Heaven's this way. All right, sorry. That's the joke around here that it's past that towel somewhere, but it's over there that way. Which direction is that? Technically, it should be east, so technically heaven is that. It is past that tile. Anyways, we, we trust the, the given righteousness of God to get us to heaven, 
But yet we fall back into this mode to where my behavior puts me in a consistent fellowship with him. You know, if you've grown up in church at all, you've heard this either just out and out said to you or you've heard it, you know, kind of a nuanced preaching uh, that what you do determines whether you are or not in fellowship with God. Now, the radical idea of the grace of God revealed to us in the New Testament is this, is that when you come to God through the person of Christ, you're trusting his death, burial, and resurrection, he gives you something you didn't have before, first off, so how in the world could you even possibly maintain it if it's not yours to begin with? All right? It's like if, if the you know, president of the United States said, listen, buddy, I'm go- I can't even do it, never mind. <laughs> I'm going to come to you and I'm going to give you a brand new rocket ship. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like, that's awesome. Just definitely going on Facebook, you know, and uh, my, my gram's going to blow up. The IG, I'm going to be all over it with my new rocket, you know. But I have no clue how to maintain a rocket ship. None. I can barely change the oil in my truck every 20,000 miles, and that's only because I buy the expensive oil, all right? I can barely keep that under control, much less maintain a spaceship. Now, I want you to think of your righteousness as the same way. God has came to you, and he has given you something that is part of him. It's not part, it's not from you. He's the one that's going to have to maintain it. If the president gives me the rocket ship, he's also going to have to give me the staff to take care of the thing. I'm not going to put it in orbit. I can't do it. It's bigger than me. And your righteousness is bigger than you. Let's not be so reductionistic that we think our righteousness is whether or not you're sitting here this morning or you're at home. Or that your righteousness is wrapped around whether or not you read 10 Bible verses rather than 20 Bible verses. Because that is the idea that gets placed on us inadvertently, I think at times, by well-meaning people and or the enemy slips in and says, let me just muddy the waters of this whole thing and make it even more confusing for you to walk with God on a regular basis. So, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fulfilled, he's talking about, number one, there are people out there that truly want to be right with God. And then there are all, there's also a promise that comes from the Father that says, I'm going to be the one that does that. You will be filled. So why does Jesus bring it up in the manner that he does? Well, first off, he has to expose our desperate need for righteousness. See, righteousness, this rightness with God, and let me see, I think I have a definition for it. Here it is. A simple definition would be this. Righteousness is the state of being that is acceptable and approved by God. Or we could say it this way. It's just being right with God. All right? Everything's right. All right? Um, That's a difficult concept for us to grasp because, let's be honest, some of our closest relationships move in and out in a flux of rightness, don't they? Even if, you know, in marriage, if it's with your kids, your coworkers, there are times where something steps in there and boom, it just throws the rightness for us, you know, like a top. When you spin, remember those tops, they were metal, you could like do the thing up and down there. I had one when I was a kid, you bump it and just see it go everywhere. We're used to that kind of rightness in relationships. So when somebody comes to you and says, there's this one relationship that, that is the most important relationship, and on top of that, this relationship was initiated by somebody else, not even you, and then on top of that, he's the one that determines how right the relationship is, not you. And then we t- on top of that, we say, that relationship's never broken. It's always right. 
Well, the religionist is going to step in and the religionist is going to say, well, if that's the case, you've just cheapened what the relationship is all about. But I would submit to you that God has stepped in and said, I am putting a value on our, the rightness of our relationship that is so high, you don't even know how to do the emotional math to compute it. I'm going to have to give you the quote-unquote formula you know, of what real righteousness is. And I use that word loosely now. There is no mathematical formula. This is not a cult. That's not the way things work, all right? But I'm going to have to give you not only the problem, I'm going to give you the answer, and I'm going to be that answer. See, the relationship that we live in is so much bigger than how right you do things and how wrong you do things. That's tough for me even now at this moment still to operate in a lot of the time. Just ask Angela. We talk about it all the time. So this description that Jesus gives of our need for righteousness, he uses this phrase, hunger and thirst. Now, when we hear that, we read through or like, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. I like hamburgers. That's not what this is talking about, all right? It's not a hunger like it's, you know, 1.30 on Sunday afternoon, and you walk in your house, and I remember when I was a kid, and the pot roast, the smell of pot roast, that blessed holy meat just <laughs> wafting through the house, that, uh, that, that cut of beef that Jesus made just for Sunday afternoons is in the crock pot with all the fixings on it, and you walk in, you know that you are thinking of your mom's house right now or your grandma or something like that. You're thinking of it right now, and you walk in there and you smell that, and you're like, yes, and you feel hunger. No, that's desire. That's a craving. Hunger is what I saw years ago uh, when I was living in Utah. I drove down to uh, Vegas to catch an airplane, people, relax, all right? And I was, while I was down there, waiting for the airplane, uh, I was walking around nowhere near gambling things, all right? Okay, I'm sorry, you can't go anywhere in Vegas, it's everywhere. The, to use a payphone, you have to put money in and pull a slot, and maybe you get to use it, maybe you don't. And so... One of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of about Las Vegas is the fact they have an insanely huge homeless population uh, down there because the weather is more, you know, it's more acclimated to living there year-round. Matter of fact, um, up underneath Vegas, there are some, it's like water ducts, you know, for drainage, and it is literally, because it hardly ever rains there, it's just basically a, a homeless encampment. It's just like this entire underground city uh, where homeless people live, actually a lot of them die every year because when it does rain, those things flood real quick and they can't get out of the way in time and it usually drowns quite a few of them. Now, when I was in Vegas, I saw homelessness. I saw people at times um, eating food. They reach in the garbage can, just open the food and just eat it over the, you know, like you do pizza over the sink like a rat, you know, like that. Like that's what they were doing to survive over a garbage can. That's, that's hunger. Hunger is where you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, is where am I going to find food next? That's what it's like to live in hunger. What it's like to live in thirst is what it was like on my honeymoon when I was about three quarters up this incline trail and I had about this much water. That's thirst. I was trying to decide who on the trail I was going to have to kill to eat to survive by the end of the thing. What's that? Angela left because she knew my plan. She's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Somebody's going down. It's not me. And so... I don't know. I can remember times where being truly thirsty in life. I remember I was the, this is going to sound really impressive. Prepare yourself, Chris. Since we're from the same area, you can appreciate this. I used to be the manager of a trailer park. Thank you. And nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. 
Nothing wrong with that. And I used to cut the grass, and it was in North Carolina in the summer, and I was weed-eating this ditch, and I had weed-eated this big old long ditch, and I was weed-eating it for probably an hour straight, and I got so hot, I just got delirious. Have you ever, you know, I was like this far from stroking out. I went into my, the nearest, my friend lived in one of the, the trailers, and I opened the door. I didn't even knock. I was like, my, I was so thirsty and so delirious. I just walked in his house. I'm glad there was nothing going on. And I was like, dude, I got to have some water. And I just, the, one of the great things, and I, well, I lived in a trailer at that time. I loved the vents being in the floor. That is so amazing. That's the way everything should be. And I just went in there, and I just laid on this AC vent. <laughs> and it's blowing cold air up my shirt. I'm just like choking water down. That's thirst. And that is exactly what these Greek words mean. They're not just like, oh, I got a craving for some food. Or, man, you know, I wish I had an extra coffee this afternoon. No, this, these are words of desperation that Jesus is using. He's saying, blessed are those that are at the point, they just, they've got to have food or they're going to die. They've got to have water or they are going to die. And Jesus is telling these people, when you get to that place, blessed are you because that need you have is going to be fulfilled. You say, you know, why, you know, we preach the gospel and we think to ourselves, why don't more people just flock to Christ? Why, don't, why aren't they just beating the door down to get to who Jesus is, to, to know what it's like to live in rightness with God? You know why? Because they're not hungry enough and they're not thirsty enough yet. God had a solution for that. He said, here's, there's a bunch, but let's just focus on these 10 little things. Just take these 10 things real quick. And I want you to do them all the time, nonstop, forever, perfectly through your entire life. Well, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. Religion comes in, and it basically religion does this. It gives us all the excuses it can muster up for why we are unwilling to say that I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness. It just says, here's an excuse, here's an excuse, here's a reason. You know why in Jesus' day there were those lawyers that interpreted what the law really meant? Because nobody wanted to admit what it really meant. So they were willing socially to pay these men to come in and say, I know it sounds like it says this, but what it really means is this. So you have to have somebody to either let you off the hook on a regular basis. Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 on the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes the law, and he just he, he drops back for a three. And he says, you can't do it. It's impossible. He's trying to get everyone under the sound of his voice to come to the place to where they are dying for righteousness because only then will they take the gift that he has to give them. Self-righteousness is one of the most destructive things on the face of the earth. It will give you an identity that's not yours. It will call you a task you can't complete. And it will put you in a relationship that is completely unfulfilling. That's what self-righteousness does. Living on manufactured, we could say self-righteousness, manufactured righteousness is to have to daily exist in a place of hunger and thirst every day, spiritually, inside, constantly consuming and never being able to say, I'm good. The lady uh, that, came, that Jesus came to, that Jesus came to by the well in John chapter 4, she didn't like check Facebook to see where Jesus was going to be and meet up with him as Jesus dropped his pen on his location at the well in Samaria. It's not what happened. 
Jesus knew where she was going to be, and Jesus went to her. You know why? Because he knew that she was hungry and she was thirsty. Jesus even recapped how hungry and thirsty she was, put it back in front of her, to not to shame her, but to show her, I know you, and I'm still talking to you. I know what your problems are, and I'm still here. I know how bad you have... Ja- now, think about this. This lady, if I remember correctly, had she been married four times? Was that what it was? Was it fourth? And she was with her on her fifth, right? Now, certainly, I'm not seeking to condemn anybody that's been in that scenario. It's not my job. It's not even part of the gospel. Satan is a good enough condemner. We don't need to be doing it in church, do we? So nonetheless, can you imagine what that lady lived with, the amount of rejection she lived with, the amount of regret she lived with? I wonder, having been married that many times, there's no doubt there were kids. I mean, we, can, we have to assume it. We don't know it in the Scripture. But nonetheless, there just had to be some kids there somewhere. And if there weren't, add more shame to that then. And here's Jesus showing up talking to this lady, exposing her hunger and her thirst. And what does she say? She says, Lord, where do I get this water that you're talking about? And what's he say? I am the living water. I am the water that I'm telling you about. See, Jesus can meet anyone's need, but the only ones that are going to receive that are the ones that are hungry and thirsty. And I can tell you that God is going to lovingly, in a relentless way, constantly put the pressure of our inability on us to show us just what he has to give us in his ability. It's a desperate, desperate need of non-understanding righteousness for the person that doesn't know Christ. All right, let's see here. What time is it? 11.43. I know you're trying to sneak. You don't even have to turn around and look anymore. See, I think that's not fair. Remember growing up in church? You know this. They had the one clock on the back wall. That was the pastor clock. All right, we all know it. And we always would be like, oh, oh." (laughs) you know. (laughs) When I was an assistant pastor, I would set the clock wrong on purpose. That's so wrong. I would do it. I would. I admit. I admit. I I did it. Also bought a special thermostat. Well, um, he's not here, but I bought a special thermostat to where you had to hold all these buttons down just right in order to change the temperature. But if you went up to it and just like bumped it down or up, it would show like it was changing. And then like 10 seconds, it would just go right back to what it was. It was great. I would just sit back there. People would be like, and they walk off. And then they sit there and they like, then they take their jacket off. I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be putting that back on in just a minute. <laughs> Hashtag the underbelly of church work. <laughs> the dark world of church work. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, so let's go get into some other stuff here real quick. Now, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we see our desperate need, hopefully... Um, by the grace of God, that was clearly delineated. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. <clears throat> um, by the way, though I didn't mention, I mention it every time just in case. Uh, if you're wanting to follow along word for word with what I'm reading, I'm reading the New King James Version, by the way. So 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, <clears throat> uh, verse number 18. All right, 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 18. And we're going to focus in on verse 21, but I like this weird thing in the Bible called context. So I try to give it to you occasionally. 
That was sarcasm, by the way. That's my other gift. But anyways, verse 18. It says, now all things are of God. That's a whole sermon right there. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Man, I like, I'm so tempted, but that's a good verse. He, those of us that are seeking, I'm convinced of this, and we'll just take it for what it's worth. I'm convinced there's not one person that has set out seeking God and found him. God's the one that does the seeking. We're the one. When, and then he, when he comes to us and we open our eyes, we feel like, we found God. I, not really. Because it says in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after him. None. And that's a good thing. It's okay. You know why? Because I will look in all the wrong places. He knows right where to look. And he comes right to us. And so anyways, that's a separate sermon. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Oh man, that's a good one. Not imputing their trespasses to them. Now that word trespasses, I love the fact it says trespasses and not sins. Because sin is this thing we do that is a result of who we are. You know what I mean? Babies cry, you know, you know, dogs run out of the yard. They do that because that's their nature. Trespass is us willingly tapping into our nature to do something wrong. It's us seeing the sign and violating it anyway. You know, it's us saying, I know that that's wrong, but I don't care. All right? So that's a trespass. It's a little, it's more willful than just sin. We can say, oops, I slipped up in sin. You don't slip up in trespass. You say, oh, there it is. I think I'll take two of those. It says, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And if you're unsaved, if you're with us this morning, or you're listening this morning, and you're unsaved, that plea goes to you too. We, we plead with you. In place of Jesus Christ, if you have never been born again, be born again today. Don't wait two weeks for it. Don't wait until the feeling strikes you more deeply. In, in, in the stead of Christ, we can say because of the ministry that we have received, we implore you to be made right with God. And so then he goes into verse 21. How can this happen? How can I stand here and make such a strong statement? How can you as a believer sit there and accept the responsibility of pleading with other people to be made right with God? How can we do that? Because in verse 21, For he, that's referring to God the Father, has made him the Son who knew no sin. When that word know is a very interesting word in the Greek language, it's, it, it's, it's kind of common, but it has a lot of nuance to it. It's the word gnosko. It means to know something by way of experience or relationship. That's what it means. And so in this verse, when it says that he knew no sin, that means he was unexperienced in relating to it himself personally. But which makes the rest of this verse so amazing that he says this, that he might become the, that we, excuse me, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, holy, apart, separate from sinners, is what the book of Hebrews says, was made something that he had never experienced in his life. Not one time. 
So when Jesus hung on the cross and he was made sin, and we ask ourselves this question, why did the Father, why did, why did, you know, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? First off, people say, well, why did he say God and not Father? He said God and not Father because he's the Son of Man, and he died as man. Man referred to him as God. The son only referred to him as father, which almost got him stoned on a number of occasions, if you don't recall. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He then becomes that last Adam, the transactions going down. And he cries out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? There's one interesting thing. Now, this here speaks, buddy, not the Lord, so take it for what it's worth, okay? You'll remember, remember during that time there was a space of what was it, three hours, I believe it was, um, sorry, bad with numbers. Three hours there that was darkness over the land, right? I always thought to myself, why? Why was it dark? And I've heard a lot of things, but I heard one guy, he was it's in this church that was probably this big around, out on a road somewhere that a goat probably initially started in North Carolina somewhere in the hills in the middle of nowhere. And I will not dare feign his country accent but he made this comment, and it stuck with me for all these years. He basically said the reason why he thinks that it went dark, this is what he thought. He said the reason why he thinks that it went dark is because he'd not have the world look on his son becoming the sin that he became. Don't know what it's true or not. I'm going with it, though, all right? Again, that's just my commentary. You take it for what it's worth. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21 we see the transactional nature of the gospel that makes you and I righteous. We see one person obtaining all and a full account of rightness, putting himself in a place where people who are bankrupt of that same righteousness. Now, it may seem like an oversimplification, and in a lot of ways that it is because we're talking about the, the willing death of a deity on our behalf. But nonetheless... In verse number 21, we look at that and we say, this is, this is how sometimes we our thinking is so backwards. We think not backwards, but maybe if we just reordered it a little bit, it would help us see what righteousness is really about. I heard one man one time, somebody came up to him and said, Pastor, can you really, can you explain to me how it is that God, that, that God has made me righteous? How, he, how has he done it? He goes, I will explain it to you when you can explain to me how God made Christ to become sin. See, it is the, the, the deep mystery of the gospel, how that transaction took place. But we know that it did. I don't have to know all the nuances of it, but I do have to know this. I do have to know that 2,000 plus years ago, Christ, the righteous one, the right one, the last Adam, became as I was so I can be as he is. That's what I do need to know. Made him carries the idea that God caused this to happen. One of the other things that I would like to maybe point out here as we're rolling through here, and I'm going to finish up here in just a second, I promise. The gospel is not damage control. The gospel is not damage control. Sometimes it's portrayed as that, like God was in heaven and Adam and Eve, they were all clicking along, everything was going good. And then one day Eve was like, hey, eat this fruit. And Adam was like, okay, I'll do it even though God didn't say to. He bit into the apple and God was in heaven saying, oh my gosh, 
what do I do now? I don't even have an encyclopedia to reference to figure out if this has happened before. I don't have anything. What do, what do I do? And boy, the world religions have went crazy trying to figure out how it is that God determined what, the, what was happening next. God knew what was going to happen. The plan was laid out long before anything had went down. It, the gospel is not damage control. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the reality that God intended every human being to live in from Adam. It was his intention. And in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4 and 5, it says this about this whole idea of God responding rather than planning. In Ephesians 1, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoptions of son by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. You know, we read those verses and we're like, man, there's lots of scary words in there theologically, <laughs> you know. But here's the fact of the matter. I would rather God use those words in relationship to me than God use words towards me that seem like he had to make something up on the fly. You see what I mean? That's what I do. I know somebody else in this room that does that too. I'm not going to name any names, but it rhymes with Justin. I think there's only one Justin in the room. See, this is what we see. We see an exchange happening here. Now, do, can, I got, can I get a couple more minutes just to finish up one last thing? Is that okay? Real quick. It won't be long, I promise. I know I already said that. It's the only time it's okay to lie in church when the pastor says I'm almost done. So one more thing over in Romans chapter 4, if you'll look over there with me. Romans chapter number 4. <clears throat> and we're going to read in verse number 4. While you're reading there, I just I noticed this verse that got jotted down. Uh, Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us as it is written. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Man, that's a, that's a, that's a good verse. Romans chapter 4, verse number 4. We're gonna be talk There's a guy you may have heard of mentioned here. His name's Abraham. Verse 4, it says, now, to him, now he's talking about Abraham's righteousness and how Abraham was justified or made right with God. Justification is God applying righteousness to you. That's basically all it is. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. When you get your paycheck every week, it's not the good graces of your employer. All right? It's not. <laughs> some, some of you are like, I know. I know where I work. You don't have to remind me. All right? I understand that it's not by grace. All right? Because they rode me hard and hung me up wet at the end of the week. I'm done. All right? Your, 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 your employer doesn't pay you by grace. You exchange. And if you really stop and you think about it, you literally are exchanging your life for that amount of money that they give you every week. Wow, that's depressing. Anyways. <laughs> Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. So basically, your employer owes you at the end of the week. And if they have paid you salary ahead of time, you owe them. I mean, it's not grace. No grace at all. Verse number five. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just at now, now, Paul says some amazing things, and his insight obviously is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. 
He he even said so himself through various uh, letters that he wrote. When he says something like this, the first thing, when we read verse number 5, it should zap all the religion out of us immediately. Just like a a heat-seeking missile, boom. You have no righteousness based on any work whatsoever. Not even the ones you're doing now. Now, You may have done some in the past that were really good, and you could be sitting there in your life spiritually like a bump on the log, and it makes no difference with your righteousness. But, But wait. When we look back at the life of Abraham, what do we see, though? A man made justified, a man made righteous, and all we see is Abraham working, moving, going forward, doing something. Abraham did not sit in the earth of the Chaldees and say, well, I believe God, so everything's fine. Well, it would have been if he believed God, but here's the thing. You can't believe God and be righteous and God not come to you and say, all right, I've got something way bigger for you than just sitting there. There's something more for you. In the coming weeks in our church, we're going to be looking at that second half of the epistle we talked about, about what it's like to operate out of your righteousness. I think so, right, Pastor? Hey, thank you. <laughs> Just making sure. We talked the other day. Make sure we're on the same page. If not, we'll talk again. <laughs> Won't go as good, I think. What? <laughs> I better move on here. <laughs> Verse 5, but to him that does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly as faith is accounted for righteousness. Verse 6, just as David, wait a minute, Paul, David's Old Testament. He's Old Testament. I mean, what are we going to learn from him? All he did was write Psalms. I mean, we don't know. What are we going to learn from David? I heard one guy in Wyoming say that uh, David is an old te- was a new covenant believer trapped in an old covenant world. And he kind of is. Because he's about to quote David, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, and then he has the audacity to quote from Psalms. And he says, blessed are those whose, I love this wording in the New King James, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now that's his Old Testament mentality. Sins were just covered in the Old Covenant. New Covenant, they're gone. Verse 8 now notice this, what he says, though. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The word impute is more than just like writes it down onto an account. It is almost like it apply, It would be like you applying something to somebody so heavily, it is associated with their identity, okay? And God says, listen, for those that have received righteousness by faith, God himself refuses, will not identify that person with iniquity at all. You see, that's real righteousness. Real righteousness is based on what God has done to put you into the position that you're in. Everything that we do is a result of coming out of that. It's not trying to get into it, you know, it, we're, we're, it's like Watchman Nee said, oh, the foolishness of trying to enter a room you're already in. And that's what religion does. Religion come, it, the, the wicked one knows that if he, if, if he loses that battle for the soul, your soul, when it comes to having been born again, he'll say, fine, I've lost that, but for this next 60, 70 years, whatever the case may be, I'm going to try to mess that up as much as I can for you. And the, one of the things that he does is he comes in and says, fine. 
Trust on Jesus. And here is a great big bologna religious sandwich. And I'm not like talking about that regular bologna. I'm talking about that nasty bologna with the olives in it. Who thought of that? And he just says, here, here's your religion sandwich, you know. And we're like, oh, this is great. And we're like choking it down like tapioca pudding. Who thought of that too? You know, it's like, anyways, I can go down a bad road quick with this, so I better stop. And so religion comes along and it says, look, I know you're in the room. Satan knows it. He's not stupid. He knows it. He knows you're in the room. So what he tries to do is he tries to come to you and he says, are you really? Are you really in the room? Are you really righteous? I mean, is that? I mean, come on. Let me hold up real quick. Let me ask your wife. Is he really righteous? I mean, really. And then he's, and what he does is he tries to take the relationship. And you know what we find? We find Paul coming to the First Corinthian church. And he says, those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. You know why? Because the comparison for righteousness is not across the aisle. It's the, the lane from heaven to earth. That place inside of us where Christ dwells. That's righteousness. Righteousness is not, it's yours to enjoy, but it wasn't yours to earn. It was given to you. And I'm convinced that being able to see that clearly and accept it is true. It's tough to accept it's true. I'm going to be honest with you. The more you've been in the religious world, the more difficult it is to accept. Does your behavior matter? You bet it matters. But you know what matters even more? Where your source of behavior comes from. That's what matters more. It is the difference between, between being in a relationship and having this plastic facade of a religious experience. So my challenge to us today is this. If you're a believer, stop living like you're in a deficit. Just get it out of your mind. Stop living from a deficit. Stop telling yourself that you're getting more righteous Stop telling yourself that you're gaining it the more that you give or the more that you do. Stop. Stop telling yourself that. I'm not telling you to stop doing anything. I'm saying stop telling yourself that what you're doing is getting yourself something. You know what? And when that happens, what you do won't seem like a drudgery. And it is when you do it from that direction. I know. I used to pastor a church like that. You know what it's like having to write a sermon when you got to? I don't know, Justin. You tell me. I'm not sure. I mean... (laughs) It comes so natural to me. I don't know. (laughs) That was for your little prayer earlier, by the way. (laughs) Don't live like you're from a deficit. Don't wait for you to feel like you're righteous. Because who knows when that's going to happen, you know? Don't wait to feel righteous. Just start operating as righteous. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior... We, we, we would give anything to help you with that. God's already given everything for you. We will spend as much time as necessary with you asking. You can ask any question you, you want. You can say anything you want to say. You can make any kind of accusation. You can lay everything out there on the table. And by the grace of God, we'll do everything we can to help you walk right through those obstacles straight to the one that's already taken everything away for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for righteousness. Thank you that we don't have to earn it. You give it to us. Thank you that you maintain it, that we enjoy the work of the Spirit in us as a a cooperation and as a power that, that we don't have to muster up. 
We don't have to gas up. We don't have to do any of that. Lord, you have everything that we need. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. I pray that for myself and everyone here that you continue to reveal that to us in whatever way is necessary in the sense that we will receive it the best. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.